Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. So glad all of you are able to join us live. And those of you who are joining us in the Crosspoint Center, it's good to have you as well. Those of you who have invited us into your home, thank you. And I want to give a shout out to Kevin and Julie Fagg in Australia who watch every week and send me notes about watching the messages and uh, they're encouraged. And they'll be coming here in March and I'm looking for an opportunity to get with them, maybe uh, have lunch and just talk as mates together. So it's good to have you all here. Well, the North American common porcupine has over 30,000 quills attached to its body. And when an animal attacks that porcupine, he releases those quills into its enemy. And when the enemy's body heat meets with those quills, microscopic barbs expand and create a lot of problem. It can create infection, and if not pulled out quickly, it could even bring about death. Now, the porcupine is not known as a typical lovable animal. Matter of fact, the name in Latin means irritable back. And some of your ladies are saying, I married a porcupine. <laughs> and, it, and, and you don't see um, many creatures in books and movies depicting porcupines. I mean, you see a lot of lovable animal, animals in, a, in, in movies and books. And animals such as dogs and cats and horses, or maybe pigs like babes, spiders like um, charlottes, web. You might see dolphins like flipper. You might even see a lovable bear like Baloo. And you even will see a skunk, Pepe Le Pew. But you will never see a famous porcupine. Nobody ever hears about porcupines. In fact, you will never see a child with a pet porcupine. Now, porcupines generally have one of two ways of dealing with relationships. They either withdraw or they attack. They either run to a tree or they attack by sending its quills into its enemy. And porcupines generally travel alone. They're solitary creatures. You don't see porcupines in groups you, you have, um, for instance, you will have wolves that run in packs, you'll have cows that run in herds, you have sheep that are in flocks, you have geese that are in gaggles, but you will never see a group of porcupines. They travel by themselves. Now, they don't always like to be by themselves because one time a year in the autumn, love begins to hit the minds of the male porcupines. And so they begin to pursue female porcupines. Now, the thing is, a female porcupine is open to dinner and a movie only one time of year. Some of you men are saying, I'm married to a porcupine. <laughs> but the thing is this, the female porcupines are very selective in choosing their mates. And a turn down by a porcupine is the most respected turn down in all the animal kingdom. But even though they like to be together, there is a dilemma with porcupines. How do we get close without hurting each other? We need each other, but sometimes we needle each other. And that's the same is true 
in human relationships. God has created us for community. And the question of, the of our relationships often is, how do we get together without hurting each other? We need each other, but sometimes we will needle each other. And you would think of all the groups of people and all the tribes that know how to get together and love one another well would be the church. But you know that there are over 33,000 denominations of Christians in the world, and most of them came from another church. And what we see that even in the body of Christ, it is difficult for us to live close without conflict. And yet, Scripture tells us that we are to love one another. We've been studying the book of Romans, and for the first 11 chapters, we've been diving into deep doctrine. And we began chapter 12 last week, and we've moved from orthodoxy to what we call orthopraxy. And now Paul is focusing on the practical things of the Christian life. He's taking orthodoxy and showing us how to make it real in our lives. And last week he began in chapter 12, we looked at verses 1 and 2. And in those two verses, Paul is shifting us into a relationship with numerous kinds of people. First, he talks about our relationship with God. And we have a relationship with God as we come to understand that we are to be living sacrifices before God. But today we're going to start in verse 3, and we're going to finish out chapter today. We're going to go all the way to verse 21. Some of you are thinking, last week you covered two verses, and you're going to cover that many today. Yes, we're going to move through this pretty quickly. Because in the rest of the chapter, the Apostle Paul breaks it down into three nice sections. From verses 3 to 8, he talks about one relationship that we need to get a handle on. In verses 9 to 16, he talks about a second relationship. And in verses 17 through 21, he talks about a third relationship that we need to build. So what we're going to do is look through this and run through it verse by verse, but look at all the different groups of relationships he is challenging us in because we're called to get along. So when we begin, the first section begins in verses 3 to 8, and here's the first heading. It deals with our relationship with ourselves, thinking rightly about spiritual gifts, thinking rightly about our spiritual gifts. In verses 3 through 8, he covers them. Let's just read them all in one section. Follow along as I read. Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now this first section, the apostle Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. 
Now, when we go through the pages of Scripture, there are four passages in the New Testament that deal with spiritual gifts. There's this passage in Romans 12. There's 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that Paul writes about. There's Ephesians chapter 4 that Paul writes about. And then Peter writes about these in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10. Now, Paul does not give us an exhaustive teaching about spiritual gifts here, and I'm not going to do it either. But in this passage, Paul tells us at least four things that every believer ought to know when it comes to spiritual gifts. And he begins with this because we need to understand rightly how God wants to use us in the body of Christ. And so let me give you those four points of spiritual gifts that every one of us needs to know. Number one, spiritual gifts are manifested in every believer, in every believer. He begins in verse three by saying, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. He's writing to the church. He's writing to regenerate believers. He's writing to those who have the gift of the Holy Spirit living in them. And every person who has the Holy Spirit has at least one spiritual gift. He, he says it in, in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you're a child of God and the Spirit of God lives in you, you have at least one spiritual gift. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift. Now, no believer has all the spiritual gifts, but we all have at least one. Now, the difference between talents and spiritual gifts is this. Every person is born with natural talents. You can have talents as a believer or a non-believer. Those talents are those are yours. Some people are gifted in music. Some people are gifted in arts. Some people are gifted in other areas. But those are just natural talents. But a spiritual gift is different than a natural talent. A spiritual gift is a supernatural enablement from the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose. It is something that the Holy Spirit gives to you when you come to relationship in Christ and you begin to discover what that is. Let me just give you an illustration. Before I was a believer, I had some natural talents. I was a drummer. I was a professional drummer. I toured around the world playing drums for some time. I had some artistic styles. I had a number of different natural talents, but I was so shy. I was shy. I wouldn't talk to anybody. I was afraid to stand in front of anyone. I wouldn't even talk to my classmates, and I was always withdrawn. But when I gave my life to Jesus Christ as a senior in high school, man, I hadn't talked for all those years. Since then, I haven't shut up. <laughs> and that's the spiritual gift that has come. And every person has a spiritual gift. Now, you might say, I don't know what mine is. Well, there's some ways you can find out. You can look um, uh, at spiritual gift inventories that you can find online, or you can get involved in the life of a church in a ministry and find out by trial and error, is this something you're gifted in? Or you can seek to where your passions are, where your abilities are, and where opportunities are, and where they all come together, that's probably an area of your spiritual gifts. But every single person that's a child of God has at least one spiritual gift. Now, here's the second thing we need to know about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are for the purpose for ministry. They're for the purpose of ministry. The second part of verse three, he says that, um, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with a sober judgment. Paul is saying that you need to be careful about pride when it comes to spiritual gifts. 
And, and that's very, very important. And the reason for that is that the church, uh, early church struggled with the issue of wearing these spiritual gifts as badges of honor. For instance, the church in Corinth, they divided the spiritual gifts in a number of areas. There were the, the sign gifts, and those are kind of the miraculous gifts. Then there were speaking gifts. Those were a number of gifts where prophecy and speaking was happening. And then there were the service gifts. And what they did, they began to rank them, and they began to put themselves in spiritual elite categories because of their gifts. And I don't know what it is about spiritual gifts, but it is a rich ground for breeding spiritual pride. And what happened is they began to be proudful, prideful of these spiritual gifts, and they began to set themselves apart. And they forgot what spiritual gifts are for. And so what are spiritual gifts? Look at this. Spiritual giftedness is not the same as spiritual maturity. Spiritual giftedness is not the same as spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity comes from the fruit of the Spirit. Spiritual gifts is for ministry. Spiritual fruit is for maturity. There's a difference. The church in Corinth had every single gift functioning, but they were the most immature church of all. And so we need to understand that Spiritual gifts are always for the purpose of ministry. We find this written by chapter 12, verse 7 again. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Spiritual gifts are for ministry. They're for ministry. And they're not for you. They're for others. Your spiritual gift is not for you. It's for the body. My spiritual gift is not for me. It's for the body of Christ. And then we see what happens in all of this is that we are to use our gifts for one another in the body of Christ. I like the way Warren Wiersbe puts it. He says, spiritual gifts are not toys to play with, but tools to build with. And so whatever spiritual gift you have is to strengthen the body. And we say here at Scotts Hill all the time, every new member that joins this church brings a spiritual gift that we need in the life of the church. And you will come to discover what that spiritual gift is, but it is always for the purpose of ministry. Another way of putting it is spiritual gifts are not for our enjoyment, they're for our employment in the life of the body. So here's the third thing about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are mandated at the Holy Spirit's discretion. I love the way he puts it at the end of this verse. He says, that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Spiritual gifts are given by the sovereign choice of Almighty God to fellow believers. And he works within that context, and he is the one that assigns those to us. In verse 6, we find the same thing. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us exercise them accordingly. Now, this is very significant, that we see that those gifts are given to us. You don't earn spiritual gifts. They are gifts that are given to you. One of the most clearest passages in the New Testament about this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Did you catch that? As he wills. The Holy Spirit is the one who decides what spiritual gifts are given to other believers. And here's the thing that we get caught up with sometimes. 
We're too busy looking at the spiritual gifts of other people wishing we had those. And we don't even utilize the ones that he has given to us for the strengthening of the body of Christ. And it goes back to, and according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This is a very important. The measure of faith, what does that mean? Some people say the measure of faith deals with God gives some people more faith than other people. God gives them some more grace in their gifts than others. No, that's not at all what that means. The measure of faith is the same amount of faith that God gives to every person who comes to faith in Christ. It is the same faith. It's the requirement of coming to faith in Christ. There's a measure of faith that every believer has, and this is important for two reasons. Number one, every single believer is equal to other believers. There's no one believer that's greater than another believer in the eyes of God. We've all come to God through faith in Christ Jesus. We stand on equal ground. And if that's true, also, whatever gift you have is equal to the gifts of others. They may have greater spiritual capacity with those gifts because they've developed them and they've disciplined themselves in them, but every single gift is as important. Whether it's a gift that's out front or it's a gift that nobody ever sees being functioned, every one of them is for the glory of God. And so he gives an illustration in verses four and five. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. There it is. We all, we, we work together. All of our gifts are equally as important. When you think about your body, there's no one part of your body that's more important than another because they all function together. And this is that famous illustration that Paul likes to use about the body. Can you imagine the eyeball thinking it's more important than every other part of the body? Can you imagine the eyeball thinking that it should be the whole body? Can you imagine an eyeball just rolling around? That's not a body, that's a monster. And sometimes we think that in the church, these gifts are the ones that are to be the most prominent, but they're all important because they're given handpicked by the Spirit of God to individual believers for the purpose of strengthening the body. Here's the fourth thing we see. Spiritual gifts are multiple in nature. They're multiple in nature. There are many spiritual gifts. Notice the way he puts it in verses six and seven. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, he mentioned seven specific um, gifts here. But this is not a complete exhaustive list. Matter of fact, if you look at all the lists, there are 20 gifts that are named. But not all gifts, not one gift is in all of the list. And no Christian has all of the gifts. We all have one. He only mentions seven here. So let's go through these real quick. When he talks about prophecy, a lot of people are confused about this. And when he talks about prophecy, it can mean one of four things when you look at scripture. Prophecy can mean foretelling the future, like as a prophet in the Old Testament. Or it could refer to the inspired, authoritative word of God by the Spirit of God, which is Scripture. Or it can refer to forth-telling, which is preaching. Or it could refer to a person 
being inspired or prompted by the Spirit of God to speak the authoritative truth of God's Word to an individual for their benefit. That can also be determined prophecy. Now, the first two no longer exist. We, don't, we no longer foretell the future because we don't have prophets in that sense. There is no more writing of Scripture because the canon is closed and God's Word is final and is authoritative. What I'm doing right now is forth-telling God's word, and that's preaching and teaching. But the fourth kind is one that can happen that many people don't even think about. Matter of fact, I do it from time to time. And it is being inspired by the Spirit of God to speak an authoritative word from God's word to an individual that God may be directing them with, with scriptural truth. It is not your own personal authority. It's the authority of God's word. And there have been times where the spirit of God has put in my heart a, a, a scripture for me to share with an individual. Now, let me tell you what I don't do when that happens. I don't say, brother, sister, God told me, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Because sometimes that might not be accurate. And when person says, God told me, you should always be aware be weary of that. I've seen TV preachers who are preaching and all of a sudden they just kind of stop like they're listening to God. What's that? What's that? Okay. God just told me to tell you this. I'd be careful of any of that. What we do here at Scottsdale and the way we practice this is just simply this. Listen, as best as I can understand from God's word and the spirit of God working together, I sense that God is saying this. Now, I might be wrong, but this is what I sense God saying. And if the Spirit of God is confirming that in another individual, then that is truth. And that is just simply taking the authoritative Word of God, speaking it at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to other people. And when you look at prophecy, that's the framework by which we're operating. The second is ministry. Ministry is just service. It's working in a life of the church, serving somewhere. It's helping in the life of the church. And it is just regular common service. We have, um, people that have been serving here faithfully in so many areas. It means maybe serving in a nursery, serving as a connections team, serving running the sound booth, uh, running the, 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 the words on the screens. It's just being involved in service for the health of the body. Third is teaching. Teaching is instructing people in the word of God. Then he mentions exhortation. That is encouraging people to do what they are supposed to do with the word of God. Some people are really good teachers. Some are really good exhorters. And they want to tell you how to apply it to your lives. Giving. Giving is a spiritual gift. But every believer is called to give and to support the ministries of the church. But this giving is a special kind of giving. It's a uniqueness where a person may have the resources or they may have the heart to just give things away. One of my spiritual gifts is giving. And they will not let me run the budget of Scott's Hill because I would give everything away. That's how I am. But that's a, it's a unique ability to give beyond just regular giving. Leadership, leadership is empowering people. Not having power over people, but empowering people. And then mercy is a gift of compassion. The gift that you have for people, your heart breaks when you see others break. The whole point of this is our relationship with ourselves, with spiritual gifts, is vitally important for us to function together in the body of Christ.
And if you have a, if you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift. And if you're not using it in the life of the body, God would have you discover what your gift is and to plug in so that we can strengthen one another for the glory of God. So he talks about our relationship with ourselves in relation to spiritual gifts. But then he goes to the second one. He talks about our relationships with one another. And he talks about getting along in the body. Now, this one's really interesting because you, you find it strange that the Apostle Paul has to command us to get along. It's really interesting. Why is he commanding us to get along? Because relationships are difficult. If you have a relationship, there will always be conflict. I love the little poem that was written many years ago. To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be the glory. But to dwell below with those we know, now that's a different story. And most of us can say yes to that. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This unity of the Spirit. We have unity that comes from the Spirit. We do not create unity in the church. The Holy Spirit does. We are to maintain it, which means we are to make every effort to make this unity be continued with a bond of peacefulness with one another. So Paul gives a number of quick statements and commands and exhortations. He rattles them up one after another. He puts them in three different clusters of scripture. So here's what we're going to do. In dealing with one another, I want to go through these really quickly so that we can see how we are to apply these to our lives. The first cluster, verses 9 and 10. When we, live, love to, when we live together, when we serve together, when we do life together, here's some of the things he said. He says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. In other words, your love for one another needs to be sincere. The word sincere in the Greek is an interesting word. The word sincere comes from the, 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 the term uh, of a cracked pot. That's what it means. Because what would happen in the marketplace, a person might want to sell some pottery. And what he'll do is there's a crack in the pottery. He will fill that crack with wax and then he'll smooth it over and then he'll paint over it. An unsuspecting eye will pick up the pottery and say, well, that looks nice. And they buy this pot. But then a person who understands this will take this up and to check it, hold it up to the sun and the sun will reveal the cracks and the flaws. That's where we get the term cracked pots. There are a lot of cracked pots. That means... People who are not sincere in their love. Which means this, when we love one another, it needs to be genuine. We don't need to be fake. It needs to come from a heart that really appreciates one another. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Again, you're sincere in loving the things of God and hating the things of the world. You don't pretend you love God and hate the world. You are genuine in that. Then he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is interesting. Brotherly affection has a picture of a family. The church in Rome was made up of all kinds of people from different backgrounds, from different stations in life. And he said, don't create classes in the church. Treat one another as a family. Outdo one another in honor, which means this. Instead of spending your time trying to be honored by people, you honor others, regardless of your station in life. 
The church in Rome was made up of slaves and masters and rich and poor and elite and the bottom of the rung. What Paul is saying here was radical in their thinking because what he's saying is, you masters, you should hold the doors open for slaves. Those of you who are rich, you should serve the poor. And you should love one another in a brotherly way. Do not create elitism in the life of the church, but be one together. Then he gives a second cluster. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Slothful in zeal means to be standoffish, to be lazy, to not take the responsibility of loving one another. Fervent in spirit means to be boiling over in enthusiasm and appreciation. In other words, he's saying, listen, in the life of the church, don't stand off to everyone. Don't put yourself over here in a corner and watch life go on. You get involved in the life of the church and let your enthusiasm for the Lord Jesus demonstrate itself in your life. Then he says, serve the Lord. It's interesting, right in the middle of all these relationships, serving the Lord, why is that? Because when you and I serve one another, we're serving the Lord Jesus as well. And so we do that together. Rejoice in hope. That means have joy in what is not yet seen. Be patient in tribulation. Very important because you know when we go through difficult times, we're anything but patient. We can become cranky. We can become mean-spirited. And when we're going through difficult times, we can treat others that way because we think we have the right to because we're having such a hard time. No, we're to be patient in that and patient with one another. Be constant in prayer. Always be praying for one another. I told you one of the habits that I have is when I wake up at night, I ask the Lord to give me names of people and I'll pray for you until I fall asleep. And lately, I have not been sleeping well at all. So I wish you guys would get your lives in order so that I can get some rest. But we're to pray for one another regularly. Contribute to the needs of the saints. If you see people with needs, rather than going and tell somebody else, hey, so-and-so has a need, so-and-so has a need, you do something about it. Contribute to that. And by the way, when you give your tithes and your offerings, you are doing exactly that in not only our community, but in places like Belize as well. And then he says, seek to show hospitality. The word for hospitality means to love the stranger. It means to love strangers. Hospitality was very important in the early church because of inns and hotels were not safe places to be. So Christians would open up their homes to strangers and these strangers would come in and they would stay with them while they were in town. They were loving the stranger. And that means this, that we are to love strangers. Not only people who are outside of the body, but people in the body that we don't know. Some of you are sitting next to someone that you don't even know today, and you may get up and leave without ever asking their name. They are strangers, and I'm looking at some of the people sitting next to you, and believe me, they are strangers. And so you, this is a great opportunity for you to get to meet people. It's another opportunity for you to invite people to Scotts Hill. One of the things I love is when people will invite someone here and the person comes here and they, they realize that there are a bunch of people that they know are already here. Or somebody will invite somebody to Scotts Hill and the person says, oh, I already go to Scotts Hill. What service you go to? They go to different services and they didn't know each other. We should take the opportunity to greet one another and love one another. Here's a third cluster. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Even within the church sometimes, 
It can be difficult relationships with people who don't like us. And there are people that you may not like in the church. But Jesus says that we are to love all people. He didn't say we have to like all people, but we're called to love them and not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's easy. It's easy for us to weep with people who are weeping. Sometimes it's hard to rejoice with those who are rejoicing because they may have something that we've been praying for. They get it and we don't. But we are to rejoice with them because of God's blessings in their lives. He says to live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I love the way he puts that. This is a picture of people from different stations in life humbling themselves and saying that there is no task that's too menial for me to do. There's no person that I would consider so below me that I wouldn't serve them. You know what I love to see? I love to see when CEOs of high companies are in our nurseries on the floor playing with kids. I love to see when we have blue-collar workers teaching Bible study to white-collar workers that may be high-educated and learning from one another and being able to work together. It's a beautiful picture when we are willing to take a lowly position to honor someone else and to do whatever God has called us to do. And we never think we're too much in one position of elitism that we can't do that. That's what it means. And so what we do is we learn to get along by loving one another. And then here's the last one, he says. Our relationship to our enemies, not retaliation, but service. In our relationship to our enemies, he breaks it down this way. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It's just, he's saying, listen, don't repay evil for evil. But when somebody gives you evil, honor instead. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it, in our culture? One of the main things that are being taught in our culture today, with all of the identity politics and everything like that, the main virtue that's being taught in our culture is to hate your enemy. You don't agree with them? Shut them down. Instead of engaging in conversation with people, we just like to shut people down, but we are to honor in the midst of this. As much as is possible with you, be at peace with all. That means this, that when you're in a difficult situation, always take the high road. Do what is right in the, demonstrating the character of Christ. And, and, and sometimes if you're in a situation with a person and you constantly are trying to do the right thing and they're just one of those people you cannot do enough for, it may be that you just need to remove yourself from them. Or put up a fence in your backyard. <laughs> Somebody said, fences make great neighbors. And sometimes that may be true. And then Paul says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Never avenge yourself. Well, there go all the movies of the Avengers, huh? We don't avenge ourselves. In other words, we don't take the law into our own hands. We don't become vigilantes. What we do is we turn people and situations over to the wisdom of God. 
He knows far better than you and I can ever know about a situation. We trust him in his judgment. We trust him in his timing. We trust him in his wrath as he wants to make adjustments to the evil that may be happening in our world. And sometimes I can find myself praying for God's wrath in certain situations, but he knows better than I can ever know. Now, that doesn't mean that he's speaking about defunding the police or anything like that. We're going to talk about that next week when we get to Romans 13. But what he's saying is you don't take matters into your own hand. Turn it over to the Lord. And then here's the last cluster. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so or so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Sounds like Jesus talking here, doesn't it? Sounds like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is saying, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. And what he's saying is this, that when we respond to persecution with honor, then when someone does something wrong or bad to us and we serve them with goodness and kindness, it's like heaping coals on their head. Now that's a strange saying to us. It can have a number of meanings. Some people say that it was an old tradition from Egypt that when a person was wanted to demonstrate repentance, then what they would do is take a pan with hot coals and walk around town all day demonstrating that they are uncomfortable because of their sin. Well, that's not the picture here. The picture here is not of harming someone, but it's helping someone. And here's the picture. When somebody treats you in a bad way, but you demonstrate the character of Christ, it makes them feel uncomfortable because of a conviction that they begin to feel. And so when someone does something wrong to me and I treat them with kindness, there's a certain conviction that comes with that and they feel bad. Now, now if you're going to only do kind things to make them feel bad, to make them feel guilty, then that's wrong. But if you're doing these kind things to demonstrate the love of Christ, then there may be a sense of conviction that they're feeling. And with that is the opportunity to be able to have conversations to speak to them about Christ. So in our relationship with God, in our relationship with ourselves, in our relationship with one another, and in our relationships with our enemies, what we are called to do is reflect the very character of Jesus because he did all of these. And when you think about the life of Jesus and you compare Romans 12 to him, we see every bit of it. Jesus gave himself as a living sacrifice. Jesus loved us with a genuine love and hated evil. Jesus was dishonored that we might be honored. Jesus rejoiced in hope. He endured tribulation and was constant in prayer. And Jesus was generous by giving himself for us. Jesus showed us hospitality as a friend of sinners. Jesus loved his own enemies and asked God to forgive them on the cross. Jesus rejoiced with those who rejoiced and wept with those who wept. Jesus unites people in harmony from every tribe and tongue. And Jesus associates with the lowly. He even took a repentant thief to paradise with him. 
See, the thing is, Paul is saying that we should walk like Jesus Christ. And as a body of Christ, when it comes to relationships and we need each other, we can easily needle each other. But in the midst of that, we are called to take on the very positions and the character and the principles that Jesus modeled for us. And so I would encourage us as a body of Christ to examine your own relationships. Are you using your gifts in the life of the church? Or are you a person that's standing off, maybe not utilizing the gifts as God is calling you to? Are you a person who's genuine in your love and you really desire to be part of a body that brings great glory and honor to Christ? How are you with your enemies? Is there a heart of retaliation and you want to get back? Or is there a heart to say, I want to show them the love of Jesus, even in the midst of their darkness and their depravity, because I belong to Christ and he is my savior. You see, orthodoxy tells us what's doctrinally right. Orthopraxy says, this is how I apply it to my life. And the Christian life is never meant to be theoretical. It is meant to be transformative. It makes us like Christ. So here's my challenge to the body of Christ at Scott's Hill. Is that you would walk like Jesus walked. You would think like Jesus thinks. You would love like Jesus loves. If you're here today and you're not a believer, then my friend... uh, You can't do these things. Oh, there could be some behavior modification in your life. You can make some changes, but there will be no transformation of your heart. It's only in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Christ, my encouragement to you is that you would consider him and that you would consider what he has done for you and that he is your only hope for an eternal relationship with God the Father and that you would consider surrendering your life to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. I know we covered a lot today in a short time. But Father, may we, may we keep in step with your spirit as he leads us along these ways of being like Jesus. And Father, may we love the way you desire us to love and to serve and to give. Father, we pray that as we go through the course of this week, you would take something that we've learned, that your spirit would take something from this message that would convict us and change us for your goodness, for your glory, and for the goodness of others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.